welcome back to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Spelling Cawhorn and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, welcome back to um, our Ag Labor series. I think we're just going to cut to the chase because I'm I'm excited to, to talk about some of the policy side of things. We've had producers on for the last few weeks um, and have gotten the inside scoop as far as, you know, some of the struggles on, on their operations, um, H2A, some of the dairy stuff, um, and so forth. Um, and this week we have uh, Mr. Rick Nairabout here with us uh, with the Idaho Dairy Association to dive into a little bit about the, the bigger picture and um, some of the policy stuff that they are working working on. So Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Um, do you want to give listeners a little bit of, of background on on who you are and what IDA does? Sure. Thank you, Valine. And, and thank you, Catherine. Uh, good to join you again. I think it's been a little over a year since the last time we did this. So uh, enjoy enjoy jumping on your podcast with you and, and talking through issues. So I'm Rick Narabout. I'm the uh, CEO of the Idaho Dairymen's Association. Uh, we are the advocate and policy organization for Idaho's dairy farmers. And I've been in this role as the lead for about five years now, but I've worked for the association for, for just over 20 so have spent a lot of time working on dairy policy here in the state and very much enjoy working on behalf of Idaho's dairy farmers. Very cool. Well, dairy farmers are, are very fortunate to have you guys um, fighting for them um, and having somebody at the state. So I think just to dive into the conversation right away, um, I remember a panel you sat on, it's probably been about a year ago on, it was the Hispanic panel and my mom sat on there um, and and just talking about the demographic of of our dairy workers in the state of Idaho. Um, do you want to just start with what what is the general demographic for for the dairy workers here in the state of Idaho and across the country really? Yeah, happy to and can really speak uh, most acutely to Idaho's demographics. Uh, we administer a, a dairy worker and safety training program, and every time we go out to dairies and train workers, we collect demographic information. And so we've collected demographic data from just shy of 3,000 Idaho dairy workers, so feel very confident that our Idaho demographics are, are pretty solid. And, and what we find, and this stat holds true year in, year out, is right around 90% of our workers are foreign-born. And so we're very dependent on a foreign-born workforce. If you look and dig into it a little bit deeper, um, the majority of them in Idaho are coming from Mexico, whereas some of the other, and, and, and that's going to be 85%, give or take, are coming from Mexico for us in Idaho. But if you start looking at some other Western states, in particular the Southwest, they're seeing upwards of 25% or more of their workforce coming from other Central American countries. And so we are starting to see that migration of workers coming from other Central American countries and less so from Mexico, which makes sense as you look at the uh, rising wages in Mexico and uh, that that country becoming a little bit more economically viable uh, for workers to stay home there, as well as they have a reducing birth rate, just like we have in America. So you don't have that slug of 18 to 25 year olds that you know, don't have the opportunities in their own country and are looking for economic opportunities elsewhere. So, so that all that, that all seems to track. Um, you know, 
digging a little deeper, if you're going to look at, we have about 18 to 20% of our workers are female and about 80% male. We continue to see a growing percentage of female workers um, as a trend, not, not an aggressive trend, but definitely a trend to, to increasing number of, of female workers on the dairy. And in particular, your, your calf feeding heifer operations, just because there's more of that maternal instinct and, and women just make better calf, calf raisers than, than men do. Um, and, that, and that all makes sense, I think, from, from my perspective. My wife's more patient than I am. So raising our children, she's probably the better parent. Um, so, so there's some, some cool demographics there that, that we've been able to collect. Uh, one of the other ones is, you know, not necessarily at the same dairy operation, but our, our average dairy worker has nine years experience. But we are, we are approaching an average age in our workforce of 35 to 36 years old. And if you're going to look at a manual labor job, 35 to 36 year, years old doing a manual labor job is a fairly old workforce. And, and that becomes a little bit concerning because to us that says we're going to see a fair amount of turnover uh, as we proceed the next few years, because our workforce is going to age out of really being efficient at that manual task that they have. So, so some concern there that, you know, we really maybe have more urgency right now than we have in the past, not saying that we haven't had urgency, but even more so that there's urgency there for a need for immigration reform to help us procure workers to, to fill jobs. So those two words you just said, immigration reform, are, um, I don't know if they're hot buttons or they are pushing buttons, maybe it's both, um, you know, it gets very politicized and that's where most of the conversation takes place. Um, and, you know, on the conservative side, there seems to be less will to get something useful done. Um, and I don't know there's certainly more want, it seems like, on more of the progressive side. Um, but again, I don't know if there's a political will or pull to get it done there. So we've been talking about this, in my experience, um, for almost 20 years. I mean, in 2005, on my family's dairy in Utah, there was an ice raid. Um, and, you know, we could go into details about how bad that was and how how much that terrified all of our workers um, and and they were all uh, legal, but still it's a terrifying thing and you never know what's gonna happen. So my first experience with immigration reform or at least the talk about it was in 2005 and here we are 20 years later. And from my point of view, not a lot has changed or at least not a lot has changed to actually be useful um, to the people who want to come here and to the people who need this labor. What do you think about that? So I would put blame equally on both conservatives and progressives. They, they mm -hmm. both have blame to bear in not solving the problem. And really this, this played out as, as we saw the Senate try and bring ag immigration reform forward in the lame duck session. Uh, we had Senator Crapo that you know, negotiated uh, as the lead negotiator for Republicans and you had Senator Bennett out of Colorado was the lead negotiator for Democrats. And, and in that process, you know, you had a lot of focus from the conservatives on border security and saying, you know, hey, nothing can go if we don't address border security. And then on, on the progressive side, you had tremendous influence from the unions. And, and I don't think what the average American realizes, 
uh, in those negotiations, we had the Republicans saying, we want more visas, which translates into, we want more immigrants. And the Democrats saying, no, we're going to limit the number of workers we're going to allow you to get a visa because we feel like that's going to help hold up wages. And you had a very strong influence from the union saying, we're not going to allow uh, any more than a set number of, of immigrant workers in for year-round ag labor. And that, that really ended up being one of the key places where those negotiations broke down. And, you know, we worked very closely with Senator Crapo's office in those negotiations. And the starting offer and the number of immigrants, there's a number of visas allowed in that starting offer from Senator Bennett's office actually decreased by about 50,000 workers from the starting point to the end point when Senator Crapo walked away from negotiations because he felt like things were going backwards. So as they would get a, a little bit of progress on the, what's called the Migrant, Migrant Seasonal Protection Act or MISPA uh, for short, you know, they would make progress on getting some provisions that Senator Crapo was looking for on MISPA, but every time they got something for MISPA, uh, there was a, a, a number of visas taken away on the other side of the ledger. And so that's why Senator Crapo ultimately walked away as he felt like I'm just negotiating against myself. We're not actually making progress. I'm just, you know, getting a little bit of a benefit for part of my constituency at the, at the expense of other parts of my constituency. And we're not really making progress. And so that's when Senator Crapo walked away. And that was frustrating because we felt like, we were so close. I mean, literally over a 10 year period, we were talking about 70,000 visas over a 10 year period that we couldn't get the Democrats and the unions to agree to allow 70,000 immigrants in 10 years. And that's just enormously frustrating that that's, you know, that, that they were that strong willed and not wanting to see more visas. And for us, we had to be very cautious about that number because in these negotiations, we're agreeing to E-Verify. So we have to agree to E-Verify our entire workforce if we're using the program. And if we short ourselves on the number of workers available to us, we've shot ourselves in the foot because then there's no way to fill that, that, that void of workers if we don't have enough visas and we're fully filling all the visas available to us. So overall, it ends up being very frustrating. And over the years, both, you know, conservatives and progressives have equal blame from our perspective. Well, in the negotiation, like, I mean, like Crapo experience don't, don't get you anywhere. You know, you end up going backwards and how does, how do you, you know, in, in these negotiations, cause you got the H2A workers and and that visa, which is seasonal, doesn't apply to the dairy operations for the most part. And then you need your full time time visas as well. Yeah. So so the structure of what the Farm Workforce Modernization Act did and, and what the Senate version would have would have also done was allowed a year round provision into the H2A program, because right now H2A is just seasonal and temporary. So those of us that have year-round ag jobs are, are not allowed to participate in H2A. So it provided us that avenue for the first time where there'd be a year-round aspect to H2A. And those year-round visas would be three-year visas with a two-week touchback provision over the three-year period. So 
there'd have to be cumulatively six weeks out of country for those workers over that three-year visa period. And so, so it gave us access to, to that H-2A program that seasonal and temporary employers today have. And, and, and it, you know, what was unique is today that H-2A program is uncapped and there's no limit to the number of visas that can be issued. And we would have kept it the same for the seasonal and temporary piece where they remained uncapped. It was just the year round workers that had to agree to a cap. Um, so that, that was, you know, something unique in this whole process where, you know, the seasonal industry still got to remain uncapped, but we had to, to try and live with a cap within year round employment. So since this didn't go through, what, what are dairies doing now or do we are they fully stacked or you know what's how are we how are we milking the cows <laughs> yeah so so it, i mean it's still it's still status quo and and for us at idaho dairymen's association this has been such a big issue over the years because our dairymen continually are short workers they're short staffed they're having to be creative in and how they manage their staff to be able to get everything done in a day and, and, and that's, I mean, we're still stuck with that status quo of, you know, having to be creative and having to figure out how do we fill, you know, the positions we have and how do we get the work done that absolutely has to get done on these dairy facilities because we're living, you know, we're dealing with a living creature. It's not like you can tell her, hey, just go, go take a break. We'll get to you later. It, it doesn't work that way with, the, with dairy. For sure. Yeah, that's that's definitely a challenge that we face in year-round um, agriculture sectors, and I'm not sure it's entirely understood by the powers that be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we harvest every day, two and three times a day. So, so we've we don't. Uh, I mean, we have empathy for row crop agriculture because you know, come harvest season, there's there's a lot of you know, labor needs and there's a lot of urgency to get the crop in. It's just, we're, we're bringing our crop in two to three times a day. And, and that's, that's our struggle. Yeah, most definitely. So what's, um, what's the statistic on the amount of undocumented workers right now in, in <laughs> Idaho? And I don't, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I think that's the, the frustration part is it's like we have people here wanting to work and we don't have a program for them to work. Yeah, no. And, and, and you know, the, the stat is a little bit fuzzy, but because it's not like Homeland Security <laughs> or anybody comes out with a dairy specific stat uh, for Idaho. But if you look at the fact that we've got a workforce that's 90 percent foreign born, and we don't have a visa program to bring in those foreign born workers, that's gonna be very telling of the, the dependency we have on a workforce that's here without status. And, and then if you, if you look at the country as a whole, the one, the one stat we can point to and we do quite often is Department of Labor, every year they go out and do an ag worker survey. And within that ag worker survey, you've got a statistician coming from the U.S. government, asking a foreign-born worker, what's your legal status? And typically, 44 to 46% of those workers will tell that statistician that they're there without status. 
you know, that's a very brave soul to tell somebody from the U.S. federal government that they're here without status and uh, assuming that that's not going to come back on them in a negative way. And, and, and so that's that's a stat that holds true and is across all sectors of agriculture, not just the dairy industry. So as a country, we're exceptionally dependent on a workforce that's here without status. We can't, as a country, we cannot feed ourselves without an undocumented workforce. And the average person just does not realize that. And many of them are just unwilling to accept it. And, you know, they, they have their, their reasons and they'll get on their soapboxes. But the, the reality is we can't feed ourselves without these individuals, you know, doing the work for us. And I think that's the most frustrating part with the the immigration reform and not finding a solution is is what you just mentioned right there is that if we want to keep our food security, our national security, we are relying on on a broken system right now to do it. Yeah. And and how do we you know, I know states are trying to find ways to protect, you know, the the workers in in-house and stuff, too. But how do we how do we protect these people that are working because they're here want to work and they're great members of society like yeah so i mean our 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 approach is to advocate on their behalf you know we're we wouldn't have a dairy industry in idaho if it wasn't for this very you know very needed workforce and reliable I can't be complimentary enough of what they meant for, for Idaho's dairy industry. And so our first approach is to advocate on their behalf. And thankfully we have statesmen like Congressman Mike Simpson uh, and Congressman Dan Newhouse that they work closely together, the last two Congresses to, to bring forward the Farm Workforce Modernization Act out of the house twice. Um, you know, if we didn't have those two individuals and, and Congressman Newhouse is from Eastern Washington, so he's, he's, you know, close to Idaho and, and his, his constituency looks a lot like the Magic Valley. Um, and so leadership from individuals like them, uh, that's needed and, and they're, they're committed, you know, when, when the Senate didn't take up Farm Workforce Modernization Act and attach it to the omnibus, the end of, of last Congress, you know, one of my first phone calls was from Congressman Simpson saying, Rick, we're not giving up. Dan and I have already agreed. We're going to bring it forward. The next Congress We're going to find a way forward. We're not we're not giving up on this. And so first and foremost, it, it takes leaders like them to, to continue to stay at the table and to push. And then from from a state perspective, you know, the state can't issue a visa and immigration is a federal issue, not a state issue. But there are places that the state can work to to try and, you know, solve some problems. And one of them, from our perspective, is providing driver's license to undocumented workers. And this is something that we've worked at for the last few years. Uh, we're working with Senator Guthrie to to bring a bill forward again this session um, to to try and find a pathway to to be able to provide licenses for individuals that are here without status. And if you look at the metrics, there's 19 states and territories that have already done this. And you look at the metrics of the reduced severity of accidents 
the re reduced occurrence of hit and run, the reduced occurrence of individuals fleeing from police, the increased percentage of insured drivers, the reduced cost of insurance, all of the metrics and all of the safety around, you know, driving on Idaho's roads improve. And so from a common sense solution perspective, this makes all the sense in the world because these individuals are willing and want to get a driver's license, but they don't have a process to do it. And so they're driving on our roadways without the training that you and I have. And, you know, they don't have, they don't go and get a written or driving test before they start driving. They, they're here, they're working. They have to figure out how to get around our communities. So they start driving themselves. And so it, it's, it's from our perspective, a very common sense, straightforward solution that doesn't solve the bigger problem, but it takes one of those issues off the table and it makes Idaho safer for all of us and our families. But because of political ideology, we, we continue to hit, you know, roadblocks in, in moving that piece of legislation forward. What is that pushback or what, what is the counter to, to, to me, it seems like a common sense approach, you know, just more training for driving, keeping, you know, and eliminating the fear of getting pulled over and, and stuff like that. But what's the, what pushback are you guys actually seeing? So most of it is couched in, well, we shouldn't be providing a legal document to somebody that's not here with legal status or, or they couch it in, in something close to that. And, and a lot of them, they have, this belief that somehow someday all these individuals are going to be deported and let's be honest about it homeland security knows that we have these individuals in country they they see the results of the i9 audits that they do on employers when when they go and do an i9 audit they know who's employing undocumented workers and what sectors of the economy are, are reliant on this workforce. You had the Trump administration issue during, during his tenure as president, his administration issued 600,000 notices to employers that they had social security numbers that they were paying in on that didn't match the name provided on their reporting forms. 600,000 employers. That, that's not employees. That's just the employer. Most employers had multiple employees identified in those notices. So everybody's kidding themselves if they think that the federal government doesn't know that these individuals are here working. And what, pe what, what most people don't realize, take a step back. You had the Social Security Administration notifying employers that they were paying in on a Social Security number that didn't match the name they're paying taxes. These workers are paying taxes into a system that they'll never collect on. And we have a social security system that's very dependent on taxes being paid in, in the amounts of hundreds of millions of dollars every year that will never be collected against. So our, our social security system and our FICA systems being buoyed by these workers and the government knows where they're at. So if you think that you can go through the Trump administration with them having the transparency and knowledge that they had and they didn't deport, you're, you're not gonna see these individuals deported out of our country. It would cripple our economy and that's what the Trump administration realized. 
And so from our perspective, you know, the, the, the fear of mass deportation is reducing as we move forward, but that still doesn't solve the problem because you still have these individuals that don't fully embrace living in our communities and they, and they have to live by a whole different set of standards because understandably so, they're living in fear, not knowing if I go to work today and I, I make a mistake as I'm driving to work and I get pulled over, do I somehow end up being deported myself because of that? And so they, they live in a whole different uh, set of standards than what we live in. And, and they don't fully, uh, you know, fully participate in, in, our, in our communities because they're here without status. And, and that's, that's really unfortunate because we, we all lose out in them not being able to fully participate because we don't have the exposure to their culture and to their life experiences and to what makes America great and that we're a melting pot. And, you know, we, we all come from different places. We have different backgrounds, but, you know, coming together and sharing those experiences, you know, that that's always been the strength of America. I, Rick, I can't thank you enough for bringing up all of the points that you're, that you're pulling together um, in your discussion um, in, in this episode of our ag labor series, because your statistics are, spot on. Um, you have evidence to back them up. And I think that they lay out a really good case for um, what the truth is regarding this matter. And so much of that gets lost in the political noise, but also the compassion that you just brought into the conversation. Um, unfortunately, it seems like in a lot of middle America and rural areas, there's a lot less acceptance um, and encouragement of, of an immigrant workforce. And like you said, agriculture and a lot of other sectors of our economy are very, very, very reliant on on these people coming here and and taking a shot at the American dream. And um from a from a compassionate point of view, I get really, really frustrated with that type of a mindset because you look at what these people go through to get here, um, especially especially undocumented workers you know, they are walking hundreds, if not thousands of miles by foot um, to get, to get, you know, through Latin America up to the border just to see if they can cross. Um, maybe they'll be turned away and then, you know, show up here with nothing but the clothes on their back, maybe babies on their back, um, trying to find just just a better life for them and their family. They are not here to be rapists and murderers. I hate that quote. There is nothing that pisses me off more than uh, when when Donald Trump came out with that. I think it was an appalling statement. Um, and, you know, by and large, my experience with, with anybody who works on any agricultural operation who is some kind of immigrant labor are good people who just want a better life. And the fact that they are paying into social security and FICA and will never see um, you know, a dime of them, a dime of it back to them, um, contributing so much to our society. It's really, really frustrating. And so you bringing this up, um, to me is very encouraging and I'm really excited for our listeners to hear this, um, and hopefully get a broader perspective of, of really what's happening. So. Yeah. And really we used to be scared to be as open as we are now. We were fearful for our dairymen, for their workers, that we put a target on their back. But what we've come to realize is if we don't share and articulate how big the problem is, we'll never solve it. 
if the general public doesn't understand how dependent we are on an undocumented workforce in our day-to-day lives, there's never going to be the impetus and the political capital to, to actually solve the problem. So we just have started becoming more and more transparent and trying to lay out with compassion, with understanding, because these individuals aren't pursuing anything different than what I would pursue if I was in their shoes. They're just trying to improve their life for their families and support their families. And so we try and do it with compassion and understanding, but you know, advocating on their behalf and helping the general public understand just how big this problem is, is gonna be necessary for us to be able to solve it someday. Well, and I, if we don't talk about it, we're never going to solve the problem. I love that. I love that quote that you just sped off because we, you know, these things that are hard to talk about or uncomfortable or could, or at one point could have got somebody in trouble or something. We just keep shoveling under the rug and maybe talking about it over a beer one night, but until the whole industry can come together and, and come together with solutions with Congress, come to, Together with solutions for the state, we're never going to move forward. So I I do really appreciate that approach as well because there's so many topics, you know, mental health and stuff too. You can lump right into that that we haven't, we don't talk about or we didn't talk about because we were scared to. And starting starting these conversations is is where real life solutions that matter come from. So. Um, well, Rick, we can't thank you enough for being on here. I'm trying to, um, respect your time and your busy schedule this morning. Um, but is there anything you would like to leave listeners with, leave fellow dairy producers with, um, this morning? I I would just share that we're going to continue fighting. You know, we've, we've been working at immigration reform for over, well over a decade now. And even though, you know, it's a very frustrating effort and it feels very fruitless most days, we can't stop advocating for, for some sort of reform, for some sort of fix. Our, our nation's economy is dependent on this workforce. You know, we can't survive our day-to-day lives without them because Americans don't want the jobs that they fill. And... And so it's just a necessity to find a pathway forward. And so we're going to continue to advocate. You know, we're, we're always looking for allies. You know, we work with a lot of different coalitions. You know, some are ag specific, some are, you know, you know across m- multiple industry sectors, not just agriculture. But, you know, find a way to get involved. If, if you want to see something happen, you know, related to immigration reform, find a way to get involved, whether that's, you know, a producer association, if you're a producer or Farm Bureau or any of those organizations, any of your civic organizations, you know, get involved there, but also pick up the phone and call your representative. And, you know, at the state level, if you agree with us that restricted driver's licenses for you know, our workforce that's here without status are a good step forward for Idaho. Call your local legislator and let them know that that's important to you. You know, pick up the phone and call, you know, our Senate and congressional offices and let them know that you do want to see this Congress address immigration reform. And we have to be heard, you know, typically 
those of us that are that are moderates in the middle, you know, we're not the vocal ones. We're not the ones out there being, you know, dramatic with with splashy headlines. You know, we just kind of take a head down, you know, do your work, do your part, you know, don't don't make a lot of noise and just get the job done type approach. And and this is one where we do have to we do have to be heard. We need more and more people to reach out and make it known to elected leadership that this is a problem they want solved. Very good. And that's what, you know, getting involved and in, in, in voicing your concern um, in a reasonable, respectable way is how how individuals can continue to make a difference in their community um, at all sorts of levels. So Rick, thank you again for joining us. Where can listeners find you or find more information on um, the immigration reform you talked about and then the um, restricted driver's license as well? So our website's probably gonna be the best place for that. Um, IdahoDairymans.org and Dairymans is plural. So it's M-E-N-S, not M-A-N-S, so M-E-N-S. Um, if you go to our website, uh, you'll be able to see, you know, some, some information there. Our contact information is available there as well. So you can reach out if you have specific questions. And then, you know, we, we do, uh, we, we, we hope to have some progress in the next couple of weeks in the state legislature on restricted driver's licenses. And so expect to have more news to share there as we get a clearer picture of when we might be able to get a hearing in a committee uh, on that legislation. So. Very cool. Yeah. And we'll give listeners an update too. Once that happens, I've kind of been tracking it through your guys's pack um, as well as just other, other avenues as well. So again, thank you, Rick, for, for joining us. And we thank you listeners for tuning into this week's episode of the millennial ag podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or email us at talk to us at millennial Till next week, we are millennial ag. Mm-hmm.